On behalf of Calvary Bible Church of Palisadro, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our pastor and teacher, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study designed to help us grow in the Word. Ephesians chapter 4, our text this morning, verses 7 through 10. So if you'll follow along as I read, beginning now in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7, where the apostle writes, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended, far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Well, may the Lord bless this reading of his word and our time together in it. You may be seated. Well, if you've been with us for a number of weeks, you know that we are in the practical section of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, where uh, he is telling us now how to live out all of the spiritual realities that have been given to us. He began in chapter 1 with an introductory statement on the Christian life, which he describes as a walk, and and he implored us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. That was verse 2. And those first two verses really set the stage for all of the practical exhortations that will follow in chapter 4, verse 3, all the way to chapter 6, verse 20, which Uh, flesh out for us what is actually involved in walking worthy of our calling in the church and in uh, the various community and household relationships. Last week we looked at Paul's first exhortation to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And that is Paul's particular concern in chapter 4 verse 3 through verse 16, spiritual unity in the church. And you'll remember that Paul doesn't urge believers to produce a unity or to create a unity or to arrive at a unity, but rather to keep the spiritual unity that already exists in us through all the work that God has done. It is a spiritual unity. It's not an organizational unity. It is an organic and functional unity. It is the the same kind of unity that the Father has with the Son, a unity which allows for diversity of persons while maintaining essential unity. It is not an ecumenical unity where all the different branches of Christianity come together under some kind of man-made organizational structure without the essential elements of the faith as the foundation for unity. That is not true biblical unity in the way that the Lord intends it and the way Paul is teaching it. That is not Christian unity at all, but rather it is a worldly unity. This unity is also not a unity at any cost, where we turn a blind eye to sin, 
ignore sin, tolerate sin, or water down, compromise, or set aside the essential elements that form the basis for true Christian unity. We are not one with those who deny or pervert the gospel. We are not one with those who deny any of the doctrines that are essential to salvation. This unity which Paul speaks of is a unity in Christ, a spiritual unity, and therefore it is a unity based on the revealed truth of God's Word. And then in verses 4 to 6, Paul laid out the basis of our unity. There is one body and one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. I mean, this is what we all share in common. God's true church is one. And yet Paul is compelled by the Spirit to urge us to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Why? Because it doesn't just happen. We have to work very hard to maintain it. Why? Well, because there's enough of the flesh in all of us and in any believer to destroy any church or work of God. And this is why Paul implores believers to eagerly, continuously put forth a full, intense effort to maintain, to keep, and to guard with all vigilance the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And so each and every one of us need to make sure that we are not the cause of strife, contention, discord, unnecessary clashes and conflict or division in the church or between other believers. Because Jesus prayed that our unity, which already has been created by the gospel and by the Spirit, will be lived out in such a way that it reflects the glorious oneness and unity of the Son's relationship with the Father and thus be a witness to the world of the very presence and power of the resurrected Christ in his church. And now as we come to verse 7. We move from Paul's emphasis on unity in verses 4 to 6 to diversity within this unity in verses 7 to 10. And then when we get to verses 11 to 16, we'll come back again to unity. And so in our text for this morning, Paul is dealing with diversity. I mean, we are united into one body, into one family, but there is a diversity within our unity. And as we said last week, unity does not mean uniformity. And just as within the oneness of the Holy Trinity there is a glorious diversity, so within the oneness of the church there is a diversity that is to be appreciated. And so we should not expect everyone in the church to be exactly the same. I mean, we are all different. The body of Christ is diverse, made up of all kinds of people, different ethnicities, different backgrounds, differing levels of education, different professions, and different personalities with differing gifts and abilities, but we're all united as one. As one man observed, that although there is only one body, one faith, and one family, this unity is not to be misconstrued as a lifeless or colorless uniformity. We are not to imagine that every Christian is an exact replica of every other as if we had all been mass-produced in some celestial factory. On the contrary, the unity of the church, far from being boringly monotonous, is exciting in its diversity. This is not just because of our different cultures, temperaments, and personalities, which, though true, is not Paul's point here, but because of the different gifts which Christ distributes for the enrichment 
of our common life. And so unity does not mean uniformity. Our diverse gifts and abilities enrich our unity and bless the church. So let's look now at verses 7 to 10, where Paul discusses now this diversity within the unity of the Spirit. We read in verse 7, if you'll notice, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. The word but indicates some kind of change of subject. It could be translated in spite of that, or on the other hand, contrasting the the previous subject matter with what is about to be said. In verses 4 to 6, speak of what all Christians possess in common, which is the basis of their unity. But Paul moves now from what all Christians have in common to how Christians differ from each other. Paul now speaks of this diversity within the body, a diversity that actually contributes to the overall unity and growth of the body. Now you may ask, well, how in the world can diversity contribute to unity? Well, let's think about that for a moment. Think about Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. In what way would Adam and Eve better become one flesh? By being created exactly alike? Or by being made very different from each other, but in a way that caused them to correspond to each other? Well, the answer is obvious, isn't it? The differences between Adam and Eve were by divine design, so that their unity would be complete. I mean, apart from each other, they were not complete, and this is why God said it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make, for, I will make him a helper suitable, or literally corresponding to him. Well, the same is true of the unity which God has purposed for his body, the church. We share in common all the things mentioned in verses 4 to 6. Nevertheless, we are also distinct in that God has given each one of us different spiritual gifts and different spheres of service. But when each believer finds his place of service and then actually does his or her part, well, the whole body grows and attains an even deeper unity of maturity and fulfills its mission and ministry. And that's the point that Paul is making. So no sooner has Paul spoken of this unity than he goes on to speak of diversity. But this diversity has nothing to do with the various ethnicities, backgrounds, natural talents of the individual members. This unity that Paul is, or this diversity which Paul is speaking of, has to do with Christ's sovereign distribution of spiritual gifts and abilities among the different members. This is a diversity in the area of gifts. Look back at verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. The words each one signal a shift from the one body to the individual members of that body. And you'll notice that Paul says each one of us, so he includes himself in this. And so the contrast here is between all and each one. We are all members of the one body, but each one of us has been given something. First of all, Paul says, but grace was given to each one of us. Grace was given to each one of us. Well, what what grace is he speaking about? Well, the grace spoken of here in this verse is not saving grace. 
Paul spoke of saving grace in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, where he said, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. That's not what Paul is speaking about here. And we know Paul is not speaking about saving grace here in our text, because this is the practical part of the letter where Paul is instructing believers how to walk worthy of their calling. They already have saving grace then what is the grace that he's speaking about? Well, back in chapter 3, Paul said this about his call to ministry. Chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. I mean, Paul had already received saving grace, but he said, but he said in, the, in chapter 3, uh, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. In his letter to the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 15.10, Paul said, I am what I am by the grace of God. And I am what I am by, by the grace of God. Not only what I am as a believer, but what I am as a minister. And so Paul had already received saving grace, but he had also received the the gift of grace to be a minister. I mean, Paul's ministry and the ability to carry it out was a gift of grace. You see, God's grace not only saves, but it also enables. Grace, as it is used here, speaks of the ability to perform the task that God has called us to. And so what we are talking about is God's grace for service. It's God's grace to serve and and build up the body. And so God in His grace has not only saved us, but He gives to each one of us, that is to all believers, this enabling grace, this grace for service. And secondly, Paul says this grace for service involves the use of gifts. Notice again in verse 7, he says it is given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And so every believer has been given divine enabling grace to serve according to the measure, that is, according to the quantity or the portion or the amount of Christ's gift. In other words, the gift that Christ gives. And this gift, of course, is a spiritual gift. That's what we're talking about, spiritual gifts. And the relationship between spiritual gifts and God's grace is extremely important. Because spiritual gifts are not things that we have earned. And they are not based upon our ability. They're not something we are born with. When you're born into this world, God gave you certain natural abilities. And and in this regard, we would have to say that all men are not created equal. Because some are smarter or stronger or more talented than others. So Paul is not talking about natural talents and abilities. This is a grace gift, a spiritual gift. This transcends what you and I got when we were born into this world. Uh, These gifts are not things that were hardwired into the way that we were made. But in a spiritual realm, every believer has a spiritual gift, no matter what natural abilities he or she may or may not possess. And these gifts are supernatural. 
Meaning that they are spiritual gifts. They are spiritual capacities given by God for service according to the measure of Christ's gift. Saving grace. Now we're talking about, I mentioned saving grace now. Saving grace. And every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Such as he chose us, predestined us to adoption, redeemed us, gives us an inheritance, sealed us with his spirit, guaranteed us an inheritance. All of these, all of these blessings are given equally to every single believer, every child of God. But when it comes to spiritual gifts, Paul tells us there is a divinely determined diversity. And this is a unique uh, to Ephesians. We find this same truth in 1 Corinthians and Romans. In 1 Corinthians 12, in fact, why don't you turn there? 1 Corinthians chapter 12. First Corinthians chapter 12, starting in verse 4. Paul says, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit, what for? For the common good. And then down in verse 11 of the same chapter, he says, all these, speaking about all these gifts, are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions each one individually as he wills. Romans chapter 12. Turn over to Romans 12. Romans chapter 12, verses 4 through 6. Romans 12, verses 4 through 6. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. But it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. Well, what's the point? Well, simply this. That every single person chosen in Christ is created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in Him, in them. And so Christ gives every believer just the right gift for the work that He has ordained for them. And just as God has ordained beforehand what task each Christian is to have, He has put every believer in the body in just the place He wants them to be, and then graces them whatever gift is needed to effectively accomplish His work. And there are no omissions and no exemptions and no errors. God sovereignly gives to every believer a spiritual gift or gifts. Every Christian has some gift, but no believer has all the gifts. The Holy Spirit gives us different gifts for different purposes in the church. And the sweet side of, of, of these differences is that we have complementary strengths and weaknesses, interests, and, and personalities. 
Whereas the other side is that these differences uh, can sometimes cause us to get on each other's nerves. (laughs) As one man said, too often we end up singing our personal versions of the song from Cinderella. Why can't she be more like me? And the simple answer is that God did not make that person like you. Christ gave gifts differently among us, and he has the authority to do so. And the fact of the matter is, without these differences, without the diversity of gifts, the church is not healthy and cannot function completely any more than a body can function completely without arms or legs or any other uh, necessary member. And they're all necessary. And so we're all members of the one body. But some have received one gift and some another. Our spiritual gifts are not the same. They may differ both in kind and in degree. But the fact is, the Lord distributes these different gifts according to his sovereign purpose. And Paul emphasizes this each time he speaks about spiritual gifts. In Romans 12, 6, he mentioned that these gifts differ according to the grace that God has given to us. 1 Corinthians 12, 11, he attributes the distribution of the various gifts to the sovereignty of the Spirit. Here in Ephesians 4, 7, it is according to the measure of Christ's gift. And so the spiritual gift we receive, and the specific portion of that gift, is given by design. Christ himself has measured out the exact proportion of each believer's gift. You see, God in his wisdom didn't make believers photocopies of one another. I mean, how terrible would that be? Instead, every believer, not just some elite group of super Christians, but every believer is given one or more gifts as Christ has sovereignly determined, and the church needs each and every one of them. It was J.C. Ryle who said, the church of Christ needs servants of all kinds and instruments of every sort, penknives as well as swords, axes as well as hammers, chisels as well as saws, Marthas as well as Marys, Peters as well as John. You see, we all have a gift. And they are all vitally important for the health of the church. And back again to Romans 12.5, according to that passage, Paul says we are individually members of one another. Well, what does that mean? Well, that means that the spiritual gifts Christ has given us do not belong to us. They don't belong to us but to the entire body. And so we're to use our gifts in the church, and the church relies on us doing so. And when we don't do that, the church suffers. You see, our gifts are for the purpose of serving others. Your gift is for the common good. Your gift is not for you, it's for all of us. My gift is not for me. My gift is for you. This is how I serve you. Your gift is how you serve others. It's for the common good. And they're given to us along with the grace 
to use them for the common good and for the glory of Christ. And that's one reason we're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Because we need each other the same way a body needs all of its parts. I mean, if there are parts missing, parts not working, the body has a problem. Same way in the church. And the fact of the matter is, the church is not supposed to be a spectator event. But for many churches, that is exactly what it's become. It's just a show. And nobody has to do anything but show up, give a little money. In fact, many don't even do that. They just show up, sit down, enjoy the flight, leave when it's over. That's not how it's supposed to be. Why? Well, because we have all been given a spiritual gift. And since these gifts are given by God, Therefore, they're to be used to serve one another in the body for his glory and according to his plans rather than for our own glory or to further our own plans. You know, as one man said, at weddings, birthdays, Christmas, and other such occasions, we often get gifts for which we have no use. We put them in a drawer, store them in the garage, or later give them to someone else. But God never gives such gifts. Each of his gifts is exactly what we need to fulfill our work for him. We never get the wrong gift or too much or too little of it. When the Holy Spirit gave us our gift, he presented us with precisely the right blend of abilities and enablement we need to serve God. Not only does our unique gift us make us an irreplaceable member of Christ's body, but it is a mark of God's great love to single each of us out for unique blessing and ministry. I mean, do you ever think of that? That it's a mark of God's great love that he has singled out each one of us for unique blessing and ministry. You know, with that in mind, we need to understand that using our gifts to serve Christ is an absolute undeserved privilege. It is a privilege. And if it's not a privilege, you need to examine your heart because you have not understood who God is, who Christ is, and you haven't begun to fathom yet what God has done for you in Christ. We need to understand that using our gifts to serve Christ is just an undeserved privilege. And Paul emphasizes this here by repeating the terms grace and given and gift. And because our spiritual gifts are given to us by grace, there's no place for boasting. And as Paul asks rhetorically in 1 Corinthians 4-7, what do you have that you didn't receive? Answer is nothing. And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Because our spiritual gifts were given to us by grace, there's no place for envying other Christians' gifts, gift or gifts. Because to do so is to question 
the wisdom of Christ. And so rather than envy another believer's gifts, we should prayerfully seek to develop and grow in whatever gift or gifts the Lord has been pleased to give us and use them. Listen, jealousy not only brings a a sinful attitude into the life of the church, and remember, it was jealousy that motivated Satan in his rebellion against God. But jealousy is also an attack on the goodness of God and the wisdom of God. It is a heart rebellion against his sovereign distribution of spiritual gifts. And so it's no wonder Paul tells Timothy that godliness with contentment is great gain. I mean, we should admire one another's gifts and and thank God for His grace in blessing the church with those gifts. And because our spiritual gifts were given to us by grace, there's also no place for grumbling when you serve the Lord. Listen, the very fact that you and I, former rebels, are serving the Lord Jesus Christ is nothing but pure grace. I mean, where would would we be if it were not for Christ? Dead in trespasses and sin, without God, without hope, living for vain pleasures, headed toward eternal punishment. But God in His mercy and grace saved us, brought us into His family, His Spirit indwells us, and then Christ gives to us a spiritual gift along with the enabling grace to use it, serving Him for the benefit of others, for the common good, for the building up of the body of Christ and the glory of God. That is an undeserved privilege. That's grace. And so when we're tempted to quit serving the Lord because someone hurt our feelings, Or didn't appreciate us as much as they should have. You know, we need to just stop for a minute. Get our eyes off of ourselves. Quit having the little pity party. Focus on Christ. And then begin to think about the great undeserved privilege we have of serving Him. Because ultimately it's all for Him. Whatever you do, do it all what? For the glory of God. And so in His infinite wisdom, Christ gave different gifts to different people. Every believer has a gift and the enabling grace to use this gift for the benefit of the body and for His glory. And so whatever spiritual gift we possess, we have it because of the grace and the wisdom of God. But no one has all the gifts, and this is why we need one another. One commentator from hundreds of years ago said, no member of the body of Christ is endowed with such perfections as to be able without the assistance of others to supply his own necessities. Speaking in spiritual terms of spiritual growth and maturity. You see, we can't do this on our own. And every time someone thinks they can do it on their own, they end up tripping and falling flat on their face because we cannot do this on our own. The local church is God's context for change. As one man said, if you're struggling as a Christian, the tendency is to stay away from the church when the reality is you're probably struggling because you're not there. 
And there are huge areas of your life where people need to minister their gifts to strengthen you when you're not around. You can't be a Christian who is effective unless you are being ministered to effectively by all the gifts poured out in the church. So the Lord Jesus has given each one of us a spiritual gift, and he has a role for for each of us to play in the work of his church, and that's Paul's point with regard to the spiritual gifts. So what gifts, what gift or gifts has he given you? You know, you're, you're to use them in service to his kingdom and for building his church. This is God's calling in your life. You say, well, how do I know what my spiritual gift or gifts are? Well, it's not by taking some corny test. The answer is that spiritual gifts are revealed as we actually get involved serving Christ. You want to know what your gifts are? Start serving. Anywhere, doing anything, just start serving. Respond to the needs in the church that you're able to meet. And as you serve, pray for discernment about your gifts and then ask others in the church to tell you what they see. You know, another way to discern your gift is to ask yourself, well, what do I do that blesses other people and also gives me great joy? Well, if you keep telling yourself, I think I'm supposed to be a preacher, and everybody who heard you says, no, you're not, you should probably look at another area of service. You know, if you want to sing in the worship team, but you can't carry a tune to save your life, that probably is not your gifting. You should probably look someplace else. But when you find that area of service that blesses other people and gives you joy, there'll there'll be an affirmation in your own heart and and also in the hearts of the people who know you and and see how you serve. So don't, don't wait around for some kind of mystical revelation of your gifts. Just start serving Christ. Just look around at all the glaring needs and start doing something. And then look for him to reveal the gifts and calling that he has graciously given to you. I came across this in my study. Let me share it with you. 100 trained, talented musicians playing together can produce music that is breathtakingly beautiful. The same 100 musicians playing independently of each other can produce ear-splitting noise. The difference is that while the second group is completely self-absorbed, focusing only on themselves, the first group is in harmony, concentrating on the music and following the conductor. The analogy for the church should be obvious. When we focus on following the Lord and fulfilling his purposes for us, it is a beautiful, even awesome thing to see. When we focus on ourselves and pursue our own selfish agendas, it is a pitiful or even laughable sight. God has given to each believer gifts according to Christ's matchless grace. These gifts are not just for our own personal benefit. They are for the good of the whole body. And then he asks, what are you doing with yours? 
What are you doing with yours? When each of us needs to carefully consider what gift the Lord has, has given to us. You know, ask yourself, what gift has the Lord given to me? And how does he want me to use it in this body of believers for his kingdom purposes? And that's what it's all about. Serving others and serving Christ for his kingdom purposes. is isn't about you or me. It's about losing ourselves in service to Christ by serving others. I mean, Christ didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So what gift has the Lord given to you? And how does he want you to use it? Well, this raises the question, how is it that Christ is able to give these gifts for the building up of his church? How is he able to to do this? Well, in verses 8 to 10, Paul gives us the reason why Christ is in a position to give gifts to his body. Look at verse 8, and Paul begins there by saying, Therefore it says... You know, therefore, or in light of what has just been said, that every believer by grace was given a spiritual gift from Christ, measured out for that individual who is enabled to use it in the body of Christ. Therefore, it says, therefore, in light of that, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And you're thinking, what in the world does that have to do with what Paul is talking about? Everything. Because this shows us the great cost for Christ to give us the gifts that Paul has been speaking of. The Lord Jesus paid an incomprehensible price to be able to give spiritual gifts to us for the common good so we could help build the church for the glory of the one who paid the price. So let's go back to verse 8, which is taken from Psalm 68, 18. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now, Psalm 68 is a psalm of triumph. It's a a song of victory written by King David in celebration of bringing the Ark of the Covenant, which symbolized the presence of God, into Jerusalem. Let me just read uh, Psalm 68, verses 17 and 18. The chariots of God are twice ten thousand, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them. Sinai is now in the sanctuary. So the chariots of God in that psalm probably refers to angels, the heavenly armies. God was accompanied by his angelic army, escorting Israel from Mount Sinai to his holy place on Mount Zion, and there he ascended on high. This is why David says in verse 18, Psalm 68, 18, you ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. So the imagery there is that of a military conqueror leading captives in triumph, laden with the spoils of war, which he will distribute 
to his followers. And this is actually a, a pretty common thing in the ancient world. A conquering general would be given a, a triumph in honor of his victories, and so he would ride to the capital city of his country, and, and really what was a staged, managed procession. So he would ride through the, the capital city of his country, often followed by large numbers of, of prisoner captives, you know, prisoners of war, and with all the chariots and horses carrying all of the, the spoils and, and plunder of his victory. And there he would be welcomed with, with loud public praise and, and lavish displays of gratitude. And following the, the triumphal procession and celebration of his victory, the spoils then uh, would be distributed. Well, that's the, that's the picture in Psalm 68. Just as a victorious uh, general or, or king entered a city and, and, and sanctuary, it pictures God triumphantly ascending his throne on Mount Zion from which he rules his kingdom. He was victorious victorious over his enemies, delivered his people, he achieved a complete victory, led all of his enemies captive, they were now subjugated, and he received gifts of tribute and submission from them. And here in our text, in Ephesians chapter 4, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul took these words, you ascended on high, leading a host of captives, and he applied them to Jesus and his victorious ascension back to the right hand of the Father in the glory of heaven after his great victory at Calvary where he defeated his and our enemies. Now it's important that we note that Paul does not literally quote the verse from Psalm 68. Here in, in Ephesians 4.8, Paul says, when he when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. But Psalm 68, 18 says that he received gifts from men. So how do we explain what some claim to be an error or misuse of Scripture? You know, is this a mistake? I mean, did Paul misquote it or, or was he misusing it? You know, just what's going on here? Well, the first thing to realize is that Paul is an apostle who has the authority to give us divinely inspired interpretations of the Old Testament. And his point is not to twist or change this scripture, but to rightly apply it to our situation. And Paul had every right to make this application because he was writing under the direct guidance of the Holy Spirit. And Paul's point is that the purpose of Christ ascending was to give gifts to his people. I mean, the victor receives the spoils with a view to giving them away. I mean, the giving is implied in the receiving. When Christ ascended, he wasn't returning to heaven empty-handed. No, quite the contrary. As a result of accomplishing his redemptive work, he returned in triumph to heaven in full possession of salvation for his people. Isaiah 53 verse 12 says, with reference to the coming Messiah, he will divide the spoil with the strong. 
According to Acts 2.33, Peter on the day of Pentecost distinctly reminded his audience that having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he, Christ, has poured out or given this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. And this explanation fits the present context in which We'll, we'll see in, in 11 through 16, the apostles, prophets, evangelists, etc. are described as the gifts of the ascended Christ to the church. And so that's the picture here. This depicts the triumphant Christ returning from the battle on earth. And what does he do? He ascends triumphant to sit on his throne and to, disti- to dispense to his people all the benefits of his redeeming work. He gives gifts to his people and to his church. You'll notice verse 8 also says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives. Who are the captives? According to some, these captives are the souls of dead saints who Christ broke out of the realm of death and, and took with him back to heaven. But the problem with that view is that it does not fit the imagery of Psalm 68, which Paul is citing here. In a military triumph, the captives are the enemies who have been defeated and who are now subjugated. They're they're prisoners of war. And this best represents Christ's spiritual victories over his enemies while on earth. So who are these captives defeated and led in humiliation? Well, They include Satan and his evil hosts. As Paul said in Colossians 2.15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Christ's finished work upon the cross disarmed the rulers and authorities. And in that verse in Colossians, Paul uses those terms specifically in reference to the demonic realm. In other words, to Satan and all all of his evil fallen angels. So Satan and his hosts were dealt a fatal blow at the cross of Christ. His doom is sealed, his his authority and power have been checked, and his days are numbered. In his death, burial, and resurrection, a great and glorious victory was achieved. The enemy of our souls, the accuser of the brethren, was disarmed and put to open public shame. Christ triumphed over Satan and every demonic entity. In Genesis 3.15, God spoke to Satan about an offspring of the woman who would come. And he said, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Satan did indeed bruise Christ's heel, inflicting suffering on him at the cross. But by taking away the guilt of our sin, Christ crushed Satan's very head, overthrowing Satan's kingdom completely. Again, Christ triumphed over him. Jesus' captives also include death. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 says, He himself likewise partook of of flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and it says, deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery through faith in Christ. I mean, the lifelong slavery. And so through faith in Christ, death is no longer our enemy, but for us as believers, death is merely uh, the gateway to heaven. These captives also include sin. Sin, which ruins our lives, wrecking our relationships and making us miserable and ultimately casting us into hell. 
And of course, sin assaulted Jesus with all the temptations common to man and rested upon his shoulder as he bore God's wrath for us upon the cross. But by dying in our place, he overcame the power of sin. He took away our guilt, and now he sends the Holy Spirit to overcome the sin that lives within us. These captives also include the world. The world which hated Jesus because of his perfect holiness. And he says now to us, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. Why? He says, I have overcome the world. These are the captives. These are the captives Christ took in utter defeat. All our greatest enemies. And they were all overthrown by Christ's saving work. One commentator wrote, our Lord conquered the last enemy. Every enemy that has ever enslaved man and kept them in bondage has been routed and defeated. Thus, having completed the work, he rose and ascended from earth to heaven. And now in verses 9 and 10, which function like a parenthesis, Paul explains verse 8 and shows that the passage quoted speaks of Christ's descent and ascent. Look at verse 9. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. So Paul says, he ascended. Well, who is that? Who's he speaking about? He ascended. He's not talking about Elijah, because Elijah didn't descend first. So he ascended is who? It's Christ. He's the one who ascended, and in order to ascend, one must first what? Descend. And the only time God descended was in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, you heard the old saying, whatever goes up must come down. But it's the exact opposite when you speak of Christ. You don't speak of him as being down here. You speak of him as being up there. And in fact, the Hebrew word for heaven simply means up there. When you speak of Christ ascending, that means he had to have first descended. And so when it comes to Christ, whoever goes up must have first come down, right? And so here's the principle. The fact that Christ was described as ascending means that the scriptures indicated that he would come to earth, which is exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ did. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Now, the reference to the the lower regions that he descended in, it says he descended into the lower regions. What does that mean? Well, a few have argued that it refers to the conception of Jesus in the womb of Mary. Others have said it refers to his burial in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. Another little more popular view is that this describes Christ's descent into Hades sometime between his burial and resurrection. But that can't be what's going on here. Because the contrast in this verse is between an ascent to heaven and a descent from heaven, not a descent from earth to the underworld or the realm of the dead. And this view is usually based on a a similar interpretation of 1 Peter 3, 18 and 19. But that describes the triumphant proclamation of Christ to demonic spirits after his resurrection 
but prior to his ascension, not prior to his resurrection while, he, while his body was yet in the grave. So what does the phrase the lower regions mean? simply means the earth. The earth, look at the verse. In saying he ascended, what does it mean with that he also descended into the lower regions? What? The earth. The descent Paul has in mind is simply Jesus' descent from heaven to earth in his incarnation so that the lower regions is, is just a way of speaking about our world in a way that emphasizes its distance from heaven. In John 8.23, Jesus says, I am from above, you are from below. Well, was he talking about the underworld? Well, no, he wasn't. I am from above, you are from below, meaning the earth. And he says, you are of this world. I am not of this world. All through the New Testament, the matching piece to Jesus' ascent into heaven is his coming to earth as a man. So Paul's point here is simply that Christ ascended to heaven because he had first descended to earth. And so this is just simply a way of saying down here as opposed to up there. But there was a time when Christ could not ascend into heaven. It was before the Incarnation. He couldn't ascend into heaven because he was already in heaven. But then he came to earth to be born as a man, to live the perfect sinless life that we could never live, and then to die the death that we deserve. As Paul said in Philippians 2, 5 through 8, have this mind among yourselves, which, you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And when Jesus was at the lowest point of his humiliation, dying in shame, naked upon the cross, the chief priest mocked him, saying, Oh, he trusts in God. Let, let God deliver him now if he, des if he desires him. Because he said, I am the Son of God. That was their challenge. And the ascension was God's reply. And Paul spells it out in Philippians 2, 9 and 10. Therefore, in light of the fact that Christ had humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. After his death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus ascended far above all the heavens. He went back to heaven in, in triumph to give gifts to men. Like a triumphant, conquering hero, he goes back with all the, all the spoils. He arrived and, and was honored as a triumphant king, and then he began to distribute the gifts. You see, our gifts, your gift, my gift, they didn't come easy. The spoils that become the gifts of grace to each of us were won with a massive battle against Satan and a willingness to bear our sin and the divine wrath of God. 
The Lord Jesus Christ ascended and he gave gifts because he had descended and won the right to be called Lord. He who became the lowest has now risen to become the very highest. That's verse 10. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And by asserting that Christ has been raised high above all the heavens, Paul is stressing the absolute supremacy of Christ over all things. And Paul's wording here corresponds to his earlier declaration of Christ's victorious ascent in in chapter 1, verse 21, when he proclaimed that God raised him from the dead far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. Paul's words also reaffirm the same purpose for his Christ's ascension to the place of, of the highest supreme, that is, so Christ can fill all things. And this corresponds with what he said in chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And the point in that verse, as you'll remember, is that Christ is not merely the church's head. He is its fullness, its life. He is the life that flows through and gives life to the church. Just as Christ fills all in all, so in a unique way, he fills his church as its Lord and life. I mean, Paul is saying that that there is fullness in only one, that is Christ. And in him and therefore in no one else, we will find every resource, every truth, all power. In other words, all the heavenly resources needed for spiritual growth and maturity. I mean, everything pertaining to life and godliness. As Lord over all things, he fills all things. Christ fills the whole universe with his governing presence. He is Lord over all. But his head over the church, his filling of the church is different. And only the church is his body. And he rules it and fills it in a special way with his spirit, grace, and with his gifts. In other words, his fullness uh, to empower the church to carry out his purposes in this world. And so the gifts and the enabling grace which we have, which have been given to us according to the measure of Christ came from the conquering king. And they're given with great expectation on his part because he expects us to use them for the church to be built up in such a way that our unity is shown forth. And now in verses 4, or chapter 4, verses 11 to 16, Paul shows how the gifts that the victorious Christ gives to the church enables it to grow in unity and maturity, but that's for next week, Lord willing. In closing, I want to encourage you to consider the grace of Christ in giving you salvation And in giving you a gift, enabling you to use it to serve in his church for his honor and his glory. And when you think about the gift that you've been given, you should treasure it. 
You should absolutely treasure it. Because Jesus purchased that gift with his own life. And in light of that, you should highly value it. And consider it the greatest of privileges to use it. And if you're not using your gift, if you're more interested in having others serve you than in you serving them, you're dishonoring Christ. You're dishonoring Christ, who again came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. If you're using your gift, but you're doing so to somehow bring attention to yourself rather than to Christ. You're misappropriating your gift. And you'll answer to Jesus. Or if you're using your gift to build your own little kingdom rather than Christ and thus divide the church instead of uniting it, You're betraying Christ who is committed to the unity and the growth of his body. As one commentator said, not to use our gift or to misuse it is an affront to God's wisdom, a rebuff of his love and grace and a loss to his church. We did not determine our gift, deserve it, or earn it but we all have a gift from the Lord. And if we do not use it, his heart or his work is weakened and his heart is grieved. His heart is grieved. God in his mercy and grace saved us and brought us into his family and dwelt us with his spirit. Christ has given us a spiritual gift or gifts and the enabling grace to use it in serving him for the benefit of others, for the building up of the body of Christ and for the glory of God. It is an absolute undeserved privilege. And we should see it as such. And faithfully use the gifts that God has given us for his glory. You know, Peter said, As each has received a gift, use it to serve yourself. Well, no, that's not what it says. As each has received a gift, Peter said, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied or God's manifold grace. So it's not for you. It's for others. That's your stewardship, and the cost was immense to provide that for you. And then Peter breaks the gifts into two simple categories, speaking gifts and serving gifts. And he says in the next verse, 1 Peter 4.11, Whoever speaks is one who speaks 
oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. And why? Why do we do that, Peter? In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter understood that the gifts, when they're used in the church and the grace and strength which God supplies, bring glory to Jesus Christ forever and ever and ever and ever. And when they're not used, Christ is not glorified and the church suffers. Oh, it limps along. But it won't thrive and flourish like it should when every part is doing their part. In his parable of the talents, Jesus spoke of the gifts he's given believers, and he said he's going to come back and and demand an account. And to those who have served faithfully, Jesus is going to say, well done, good servant. Or as some translations say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And then he's going to reward us with far more than we could ever imagine. And so may each one of us hear those words as well. Well done, good servant. And may we hear them because we have been faithful to use the gifts that God has given us for the good of his church and for his glory. Amen. Let's stand and pray. On behalf of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Bible Church of Palisadro, we hope and pray this study will help you continue growing in the Word. If you've been blessed by today's message, or if you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can call us at 530-547-4400. Again, 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the church website, at calvarybiblepc.org calvarybiblepc.org Thank you for listening and may God richly bless you It's your love